Do any of you guys remember the movie Gravity from back in 2013? If you remember the movie Gravity, can I get you to raise a hand for me? Anyone? Gravity? So, interesting movie. Sandra Bullock. There's a picture of her right there. And George Clooney were both in this movie. And uh, I believe it was nominated for seven different Academy Awards. So, it was, a, it was actually, you know, a very good movie. Sandra Bullock was nominated for Best Actress, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and it won a couple of those, I'm not sure exactly which ones, but it chronicles two astronauts, one again played by Bullock and the other one played by George Clooney, and they go up into space in a space shuttle, and like all space movies, they encounter some problems, and uh, essentially what happens is their space shuttle is destroyed, they make it to a space station, uh, she makes it to another, you know, shuttle and uh, essentially is alone and everybody else has either escaped or passed away. And the shuttle that she is in, the oxygen is sort of depleted and it's almost gone and there's no fuel in the space shuttle. Sorry for giving it away to those of you who are going to go home and watch it tonight. I apologize. But basically it looks completely bleak. It looks like all hope is lost. And there's this great scene where uh, she says this. She says, I would pray but no one ever taught me how. I would pray, but no one ever taught me how. Over the next several weeks, we'll be working through a series that we're calling Teach Us to Pray. That's a phrase that mirrors the request of the disciples to Jesus in Luke chapter 11. Of course, Jesus' response to that request is uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer. So before we jump into the Lord's Prayer, let me take a moment and uh, let's do that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, be with us today. I pray that you would take the words of Scripture and that you would not only help them to enter our ears and our minds, but that the words of Scripture might make their way all the way down into our hearts, Father, so that we wouldn't just think differently, but we would feel differently. And of course, that once we think and feel differently, Father, that our, our behavior and our actions might follow suit. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Interestingly, uh, the fellow that directed Gravity also directed uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the movie. Little known fact. There you go. And uh, this, uh, you know, chronicles one of the stories of Harry uh, Potter doing his thing in, you know, Hogwarts and all that stuff. Those of you who are out there that are Hogwarts fans or Harry Potter fans know what I'm talking about. But in the very beginning of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, there's a character who's half giant and half human. His name's Hagrid. And he's a little bit of a bumbling fellow, but a very, very nice guy and good friends with Harry and his buddies. And he is appointed um, the new professor for care of magical creatures. And so one of the first things that he does is uh, attempt to impress the students of Hogwarts. And so he introduces them to this mythical beast called a hippogriff. And a hippogriff is half giant eagle and half horse. And, uh, and one of the things that's very interesting about this is he says, you know, you have to be very careful how you approach a hippogriff. Because if you approach it the wrong way, it might attack you and you might be killed. You have to approach it the right way. Now, again, I'll let you watch the movie um, or read the book if you would like. But many of us think about approaching God in similar ways. What we do is we think, well, if I can approach God according to the right formula, then I'll get what I want, right? God will give me what I want, and, uh, and then ultimately um, I'll be good, I'll be safe. Wouldn't it be great if somewhere in Scripture the Bible addressed this idea of how to approach God, not just to get what we want, 
but rather to come into the presence of our Heavenly Father. And the good news is that there is a place, there are two places, in fact, where Jesus addresses this very thing. Two places Jesus addresses and gives what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The first is found in John chapter 11, and then the second is found in Matthew chapter 6. It's this passage, Matthew chapter 6, that we'll be looking at today. In it, Jesus uses the, the term Father four different times. And so anytime you see a word that echoes over and over and over again, usually you can assume that that's a clue as to part of the, the idea of a particular passage. And what's interesting is the word prayer is only used six times in the same passage. This should be, again, a clue of how it is that we're to approach God in prayer. Let's again look at Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 5 through 13. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, that would have been a word that meant actor in their culture, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." So what do we see in this passage about how we are to approach God in prayer? What we see is we see Jesus highlighting two wrong ways to approach God in prayer, and then he focuses on one right way to approach God in prayer. Let's look very quickly at the two wrong ways. The first is what I'll call virtue signaling prayer, virtue signaling prayer. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, before we go too far, let's define this term virtue signaling. The term first appeared, as far as I can tell, in an article by David Foster Wallace back in 2001, although there's a British journalist who I've heard interviewed before, his name's James Bartholomew, and he actually has also taken credit for coining that term. I'll let Uh, You guys do your own research on that. But regardless of its origin, virtue signaling is when someone does or says something in order for the purpose of gaining social capital within a certain group, if that makes sense. So you do or say something in order to gain social capital with a particular group of people. So let me give you a couple of different examples. Let's say you're in the company of a group of people who you know are fairly progressive, you know, maybe maybe, uh, particularly you know, socially or politically progressive. You could virtue signal by talking about the horrors of global warming, right? In other words, you could start talking about how dangerous it is and how scary it is, and you could say all these things that you know, or at least can guess that they probably already agree with. Um, Or you could start talking about veganism. It just so happens that one member of our family actually eats like a vegan, um, so I can make fun of that a little bit. But essentially, you can talk about how great it is and all these other things. And again, those are things that might be in line with what might be thought of as a more progressive sort of ideology. And so you can try to score points with that group by talking about those things and affirming them. Or if you're in maybe a more conservative group, you might make fun of veganism and vegans 
or you might make fun of global warming, or you might sort of, sort of try to undermine some of the perspectives about it. Either way, my point isn't to talk about veganism being good or global warming being good or any of that. So that's not what I'm here to say. My point is to say, very often somebody who virtue signals basically says something that's not really about the actual dialogue. Rather, they're simply signaling their virtue to the group in order to gain social capital within that group. You kind of understand that you've done it before, actually, I would guess. Using prayer to virtue signal probably seems really strange to most of us who are younger because we've grown up in a post-Christian and a secular context. If anything, praying publicly would actually diminish our social capital in most contexts in 2021. People would just think we were weird. For those of us who are older and who grew up in more of a Christian culture, we get it. Uh, I can think back to like middle school youth group, and there was always one kid who, even though he was from South Carolina, would pray in a British accent and use Old English. And I think he was trying to sound super spiritual. And all kidding aside, I remember actually entering into to ministry, particularly in seminary, and I had to pray publicly, you know, pretty frequently. And I would catch myself praying for the primary purpose of trying to be theologically correct and to not sound like too much of an idiot. I was ultimately far more conscious of pleasing people, the people who were listening to me pray, than I was of actually talking to the God of the universe. Does that make sense? And so there's a real danger there. The culture of Israel during Jesus' time was very, very, very religious. And the Pharisees were the most religious of all of the people. They were the religious leaders who carried the most weight in society. It was very common for them to signal their virtue to one another in any number of different ways in order to attempt to move up their particular dominance hierarchy. And public prayer would have been one of the ways for them to do that. Jesus, as a result, warns his listeners, which on the Sermon on the Mount would have been not only his disciples, but broader crowds as well. But Jesus warns his listeners against using something as sacred as prayer in such a self-serving way, if that makes sense. Now, maybe you're in a context, maybe Young Life, maybe Campus Outreach, maybe Youth Group, maybe you're the head of a religious organization somewhere. Maybe you could be tempted to use uh, prayer as a way to win social capital, and maybe that's an actual temptation for you. Maybe when you pray, all of your energy is around pleasing the people who are listening to you. You may need to pay attention to yourself if that's the case the next time you pray, and just be aware of what's actually motivating you, what's going on inside of you. Jesus says to his listeners and to us, if your goal in prayer is people-pleasing, then you've accomplished that goal, but you will have missed out on something far, far greater. So Jesus gives us one wrong way to come into the presence of God in prayer. The second wrong way that he discusses is what he calls pagan prayer, what I'll call pagan prayer. Verses 7 and 8 focus on this. And this is probably a greater temptation for most of us. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The word translated Gentile here in the ESV is actually ethnikos, or ethnikos in Greek. 
The NIV translates that same word pagan, and both are perfectly fine translations. Jesus isn't using the term in a derogatory way in the same way that if I called one of you a pagan, I might be using it. That's not what he's doing. He's using it accurately. He's saying, ultimately, that there's a wrong way to pray within Judaism or within the Jewish religion, that is the virtue signaling way, but there's also a wrong way to pray outside of Judaism as well. One of the things that pastors are often asked is how Christianity differs from other religions. You know, how's Christianity different? Or aren't they all really the same? Often what those people are really wrestling with is how they can know that Christianity is the right one or the only one. Those of you who have studied some of these differences and studied the major religions, you know some of the key differences. One of the primary differences is the need to get it right. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism are all works-based religions. In order to get in, you have to get it right, if that makes sense. Several years ago, I was on a flight from Mumbai, India, uh, back to Atlanta, and I sat next to an Indian businessman. Now, in India, interestingly, unlike in the West, it's completely appropriate or acceptable to discuss religion. Like, that's totally fine with them. And so I asked him about Hinduism. I was just kind of curious from his perspective, if he could, you know, what he would tell me about Hinduism. And then I asked him also about salvation within the context of Hinduism. And he used the illustration of American football to explain salvation in Hinduism. He talked about how in each new life that you might move a little bit forward, right? You might gain a little ground. You might lose a little ground depending on how you live your life. But the goal was eventually to cross the goal line, although according to him, no one yet had ever successfully crossed the goal line in Hinduism. It was ultimately about getting it more right than wrong. And what he would have said is that if you string enough good lives together, then you finally make it. So prayer in a works-based religion becomes one more place to get it right or it becomes one more place to get it wrong. And as a result, what happens is that prayer becomes this transactional thing. If I give God what he wants, then he'll give me what I want. So one of the ways to approach God in that paradigm is to pray a lot. And one of the ways to approach God in that paradigm is to pray with lots of energy, hoping that you'll be heard, because somewhere along the way you uttered the right phrase with just the right amount of desperation, almost like a little... Uh, spell that, you, that might be used in Harry Potter. Just to be clear, this type of prayer doesn't just happen in other religions. It happens within Christian religiosity as well, which is exactly why Jesus addresses it. Those of us who pray probably can identify to some degree with this way of approaching God. As a pastor with some theological training, often I'll get caught up and trying to pray with theological precision instead of just talking to God. Nothing wrong with theological precision, by the way. Some of you do the very thing that Jesus is talking about here. You'll pray using lots of words or lots of phrases and lots of passion, believing that somewhere amongst the mountain of words you throw heavenward, you'll get the formula correct and that God will hear you. If this is how you've been approaching God, then it's no wonder why prayer is so unsatisfying. In fact, it's probably not just unsatisfying, it's probably exhausting. And if something that is that unsatisfying and that exhausting, if it's that horrible, then how many of us are going to stick with it? The answer is probably not many. So Jesus warns his listeners against praying like what we call virtue signalers. 
In verse 6, he tells them, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He then warns his listeners against praying like pagans. In verse 8, he tells them, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We could focus here on praying in secret. We could focus on how God knows what you need even when you don't know what you need. But both of those truths are predicated on far, something far, far deeper, our adoption into God's family. Because we've been adopted as daughters, because we've been adopted as sons, it's absolutely vital to understand that when we pray, we aren't coming before a hard-to-please boss. We aren't coming before a stern government official. We are coming as sons and daughters into the presence of a good father. And that's Jesus' first point we see here in verse 9 through 13. He says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, our Father in heaven. George MacDonald was a Scottish author, poet, and pastor. G.K. Chesterton, J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, all credit MacDonald with greatly influencing their thought and their writing. In fact, Lewis refers to MacDonald as his, his master. Like his protégés, MacDonald was a very thoughtful Christian. Writing on prayer, he made the following observation. He said this, The hardest, gladdest thing in the world is to cry, Father, from a full heart. The refusal to look up to God as our Father is the one central wrong in the whole human affair, the inability, the one central misery. I think MacDonald is absolutely right. Our core struggle as humans is not believing in the existence of God, but believing in the goodness of God. If you remember, that was Satan's temptation to Eve. He wanted her to doubt God's goodness. He wanted her to question whether or not uh, he could be trusted. Since that moment, since the moment of Adam and Eve's fateful choice, all of humanity has been polluted by that same doubt. That means that goes for you and me. Think about how that doubt shapes our relationship to God. If God isn't good, if he can't be trusted, then our best options are either to try and bribe him in order to keep him off of our backs or to run from him altogether. These are the two exact responses that Jesus lays out in his story that we call the prodigal son. In it, one son fled from the father, and the other son did his best to try to appease him. Jesus, of course, told the story to alter what it is that we believe about God. The father in the story isn't only good. He loves both of his sons, and he longs to be with them. It's this God to whom Jesus is inviting us to pray. This should be our image of God. Greg Boyle is a Catholic priest who works with gang members in Los Angeles. The vast majority of those gang members come from fatherless homes, so, so the idea of imagining God as a loving father, as you might imagine, is very difficult for them. In his book, Tattoos on the Heart, he recounts a story told to him by his spiritual mentor that helps both he and his gang members in his ministry to see God in a prodigal son kind of way. He writes this, 
Years ago, my spiritual mentor, Bill Kane, took a break from his own ministry to care for his father as he died of cancer. His father had become a frail man, dependent on Bill to do everything for him. Though he was physically not what he had been and the disease was wasting him away, his mind remained alert and lively. In the role reversal common to adult children who care for their dying parents, Bill would put his father to bed and then read him to sleep, exactly as his father had done for him in childhood. Bill would read from some novel, and his father would lie there staring at his son, smiling. Bill would be exhausted from the day's care and work, and eventually he would plead with his father. He'd say, look, here's the idea, Dad. I read to you, and you fall asleep. Bill's father would impishly apologize and dutifully close his eyes, but this wouldn't last long. Soon enough, Bill's father would pop one eye open and smile at his son. Bill would catch him and whine, now come on, Dad. The father would again oblige until he couldn't anymore, and the other eye would open to catch a glimpse of his son. This went on and on, and after his father's death, Bill said that this evening ritual was really a story of a father who just couldn't take his eyes off of his kid. How much more so of God? Boyle adds, what's true of Jesus is true for us. And so this voice breaks through the clouds and comes straight at us. You are my beloved in whom I am wonderfully pleased. It's my honor and my privilege to invite you to pray to the father of whom Jesus speaks in the story of the prodigal son. It's my honor and my privilege to invite you to pray to the heavenly father to whom all, whom all good earthly fathers point us. It's my prayer that you would begin to truly pray our father who art in heaven. I have one request for all of you after listening to this sermon today, and the request is very, very simple. For the next week, I want to challenge you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. I want to challenge you to wake up every morning and to pray this Lord's Prayer when you wake up. And I want you to begin by really allowing what Jesus is saying here to shape the way that you pray, that you would really pray our Father who art in heaven. I want you to pray that every day, and then I want you to sit back, and I want you to see what God does. Let's take one moment, and let's pray. Father, we do come to you today, even using that term, Abba, Father, that ultimately your son Jesus taught us to pray. And so, Father, I pray that, Father, no matter what kind of dads we had, and whether or not they were particularly loving or kind, or whether or not they couldn't take their eyes off of us, whether or not they smiled lovingly, at us. Father, that we would realize that good fathers do that, that good fathers love their kids, that good fathers are proud of their children, that good fathers um, are more than happy to have their kids wake them up in the middle of the night when they're in need. And so, Father, I pray that we would see you in the same way that Jesus taught us to see you as our good father. Father, I pray that that would just change us drastically, that we might change who we see ourselves to be, and it might change the way that we see you. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.